Well, I, I know this might come as a bit of surprise to some of you, um, but I've always been small of stature. I know it's going to surprise some of you. Um, it wasn't just something that happened to me late in life. I've always been a little bit of a shorter guy. All the, the classes I was in as a kid, I was always either one of the shortest, if not the shortest guy in the class. But, but what I lacked in height, I made up for in speed. Not, not so much nowadays, but, but back, <laughs> back in those days, I was one of the faster kids in the class. Now I'm one of the fatter kids in the class, but back then I was one of the faster kids in the class. And I remember one year when I was still in elementary school, uh, we were doing these organized races. I think it was part of the Awana Games or something like that. And I was chosen to do the last leg of this four-man relay. And I was a little nervous about it because I started to realize that winning or losing this race was going to be dependent on me because I was the last guy running. So, so I went to the coach and, you know, lacking self-confidence, I went to the coach and I said, are, are you sure you want to do the race this way? Are you sure you want me being the last guy to run? Well, he looked at me and he said, and I still remember this today, Ryan, don't you know that dynamite comes in small packages? How many of you have ever heard that saying, yeah? Dynamite comes, well, I was in elementary school, so it took me a second to put it together. But I remember as I put that together, then my entire attitude towards, I mean, I, I saw myself, you can mix, imagine, I don't know, it was like fourth grade or something. I saw myself as, I'm dynamite, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and my whole attitude changed, and, and I realized, you know, in spite of my size, I could have a big impact on the race. Now, honestly, I was trying to think back over, I don't remember if we won the race or not. But I do remember uh, running with confidence in that race uh, because that, that little saying had helped me to look at things differently. That little paradoxical statement, you know, that something small can have a big impact. That statement changed the way that I saw things. It changed the way I approached things. And I bring up that story as we get started this morning because God's word also offers us paradoxical truths that call us to look at life differently. God's word offers us paradoxical truths that call us to look at life differently. Life in the kingdom of God is a life of paradoxes. Beautiful, sometimes challenging paradoxes. Remember this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Will find it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, the apostle Paul writes, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. So become a fool, give up the wisdom of this world to embrace the wisdom of Christ. In Matthew 23, 12, Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In Mark 10, 44, Jesus explains that whoever would be first among you must be the slave or the servant of all. You want to be first in the kingdom of God? What position do you need to take up? Yeah, being the servant or the slave of all. You see, the Bible repeatedly calls us to this life of paradox. We must die with Christ in order to live with Christ. We endure with him to reign with him. His power is made perfect in our weakness so that when we are weak, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, that's when we're strong. When we're weak is when we're strong. And God's word repeatedly gives us these paradoxical statements so that we might look at things differently. So that we might look at things differently. We need to learn that the life of a child of God is the opposite of the life that we're used to. Amen? The life of a child of God is the opposite of the life that we're used to. We're used to, I mean, think about this. What comes naturally to us in our fallenness is clinging to what's ours, right? Not surrendering it. Amen? You ever struggle with that? It's mine, we say, right? We want to cling to what's ours instead of surrendering. We're used to hiding our weaknesses, right? I don't want anybody to know that about me. We're used to hiding our weaknesses instead of boasting. And then we're used to climbing over others to get what we want, not serving them. That's what we're used to in our, in our flesh, in our fallenness. But then comes Jesus. Then comes Jesus. And in him we see the beauty and the paradoxes. We, we see that the reality of the kingdom of God contrasted with the ways of this world and the reality of the kingdom of God, the ways of Jesus, are beautiful. Think about this. In Christ, in his incarnation, we see the glory of the one who humbles himself. Amen? We see the glory of the one who humbles himself. We see the strength of the one who becomes weak. And we find the breathtaking wisdom of the plan of God in what looks like, at first glance, utter foolishness. 
we find a king who conquers through sacrifice. A king who conquers through sacrifice. And that particular paradox is what we're going to begin looking at this morning. A king who conquers through sacrifice. This morning as we enter Mark's gospel chapter 15, which is really the chapter of the cross, Mark is going to walk us through this powerful paradox that is Jesus. He's going to show us Jesus, our king, who comes into his glory through a cross. He comes into his glory through a cross. So if you haven't done so already this morning, I'd encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. And I was thinking about this week. I think I have five, six more messages left. So we are finishing now, getting close to finishing a a three-year, I was looking when we started, a three-year trek through the gospel. So it was just a short little walk through the gospel of Mark. But now we have come into chapter 15, the chapter of the cross. And in our text for this morning, Mark 15, verses 1 to 15, Mark's going to show us three things. We're going to watch our king accused, our king rejected, and then our king condemned. Our king accused, rejected, and condemned. We will watch Jesus condemned to death by crucifixion. But I want you to understand that Mark isn't showing these things to play on our emotions. The Bible isn't sensational when it it talks about these things. It doesn't go into a lot of graphic and gory detail when it talks about the crucifixion of Jesus or the suffering of Christ. Mark isn't playing on our emotions. He's not trying to to garner a sympathy vote for Jesus like, Oh, look how much Jesus suffers. Nobody's on his team. Would you please join Jesus' team? That's not what Mark is doing here. Mark is instead, he is showing us these things in order to teach us about the paradox that is Jesus and the kingdom of God. He's showing us these things to teach us about the paradox that is Jesus and the kingdom of God. You see, as we watch Jesus accused, rejected, and condemned, Mark will reveal to us the glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus. As we see Jesus accused, we're going to witness a faithful servant. As we see Jesus rejected, we will behold a substitutionary sacrifice. And as Jesus is condemned again, we will see our king coming into his glory. Our king coming into his glory. We will see that the way of Jesus is so different than the way of this world. The way of Jesus is so different than the way of this world. And as we see that, my prayer for all of us this morning is that we would understand in a greater way this life that we are called to as Christians. This life that we're called to as Christians. It is a life of paradox and the paradigm for that paradox, is our king and his cross. The paradigm is our king and his cross. So let's begin now to step through chapter 15. And the first thing that Mark shows us here, again, if you keep an outline, is our king accused, our king accused. If you look at the text here, it opens with a time marker and a connection back to chapter 14. Mark tells us, verse 1, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests had held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now, remember, as we've been working through this, Jesus has been standing trial before the Sanhedrin all night long. Remember that? All night long. Back in chapter 14, there was Jesus in Gethsemane. He'd come into Gethsemane after the Passover meal. Passover meal ended about midnight on Thursday. Jesus and disciples went into Gethsemane. And there, Judas arrived and the crowds with him. And they arrested Jesus. And he was led away by the temple guards, and he was taken to the house of the high priest. And we're not sure, but that could have been 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. Again, it's Thursday's turning into Friday. And he's there to stand trial before the Sanhedrin and the high priest, so the Supreme Court of Israel. And that, that trial, that mock trials we looked at, went on all throughout the night. But as chapter 15 now opens, Mark tells us that that, that long night is over, And dawn has broken. That's what that phrase, it was morning, actually means. It refers to to the dawn of the day, that Friday. Now, as you walk through Mark chapter 15, you'll see that Mark actually gives us a series of time markers as we go through this chapter. He uses a series of of time stamps, if if you will, uh, to outline for us the events of the crucifixion that took place that Friday. Here in verse 1, we have that first time marker at the dawn, and here at the dawn, Mark is going to tell us about the events surrounding Jesus' condemnation to be crucified. But then if you go down to verse 25 in the chapter, Mark gives us there another time marker. You see it there. He tells us, look at the text, Mark 15, verse 25, that it was when the third hour, the third hour, which is 9 a.m., 9 a.m., 
when Jesus was crucified. Find the third stamp down in verse 33. There we're told it was the sixth hour, or noon, when darkness fell over the whole land. And the next verse there, verse 34, Mark pushes us three hours later to the the ninth hour, or 3 p.m., and here he tells us about the, the cry of dereliction from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He shows us Jesus breathed his last, the temple veil being torn. And then we have this proclamation made by the centurion. Truly this man was the son of God. And then down in verse 42, Mark gives us the last time marker. He says, when evening had come, or 6 p.m., they took the body of Jesus down from the cross and they buried it. So, so in this chapter, I want, to, I want you to understand, is Mark is walking us through the, the day of the crucifixion. He's taking us through that Friday from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And that day began with the Sanhedrin at 6 a.m. determining the next step in regards to Jesus. Now, remember back in chapter 14, they'd all agreed that Jesus was worthy of death. We saw back in verse 64 of chapter 14 that the high priest had accused Jesus of blasphemy. The entire Sanhedrin, we read there, condemned him as deserving of death. So they've already come to that conclusion. But now Mark tells us that in their sentencing of Jesus... They desire to include the Romans. So this Jewish Supreme Court now is desiring to include the Romans. They bind Jesus and they deliver him over to Pilate, who is the Roman governor of Judea. But here's a question. Why include the Romans? Why include those guys? Why, why not just deal with Jesus themselves? You know, the high priest and the Sanhedrin. Why bring somebody else into this proceeding? I mean, couldn't they just mess everything up? Well, according to John 18.31, the Sanhedrin needed the Romans if they were going to carry out the the death penalty. They needed Rome's authority if they were going to carry out the death penalty. You see, it was not legal for the Sanhedrin to kill anybody. They could condemn somebody, but they couldn't carry out capital punishment. According to historical records, the Romans, the Sanhedrin used to have that, that right, but the Romans had actually revoked that right of the Sanhedrin to carry out capital punishment. So if the Sanhedrin truly wants Jesus to die and do so according to law, they need the help of Rome. They need the help of Rome. But in addition to to having Rome help condemn Jesus, I also think the Sanhedrin wanted Rome's authority partnering with them against the followers of Jesus. I think um, this is something that the Sanhedrin desires as well. I think they don't want to just kill Jesus. I think they want to kill off this Jesus movement, this messianic movement among the people. And I imagine that in their eyes, having Rome's authority along with theirs, opposing anybody who was a follower of Jesus, they probably thought, that, that'll scare a lot of people. That'll discourage a lot of people about talking about Jesus. So, so I think that's also why they go to the Romans. They go to have Rome's authority in this matter. So the council meets in the morning, six in the morning, and they send Jesus to the Roman governor in order to get his support for their condemnation of Jesus. And at the time, the Roman governor, or the prefect over Judea, was a guy by the name of Pilate. Now, Pilate had been appointed to this post by Rome, and he served there in Judea for 10 years, from A.D. 26 to A.D. 36. And during that time, Pilate didn't always get on so well with the Jews. They had several very negative run-ins. The historian Josephus records a few of these. Uh, On one occasion... Pilate introduced the Roman military standard to Jerusalem. He put the banner with images of Caesar and the Roman eagle. He put them all over the city of Jerusalem. And as you can imagine, that didn't go so well with the Jews. They actually got pretty ticked off about that because they saw it as a graven image, as blasphemous idolatry, now uh, spread all over the holy city. And so they got very upset. They traveled in mass to Pilate's residence in Caesarea, and they staged a protest there. For five days. You got to take these things down. Well, after those five days of protests, Pilate got tired of it, so he ordered his soldiers to kill all of the protesters. Well, here's how the Jews responded to this threat. And this is again from the historian Josephus. They responded by, by laying bare their necks and welcoming death rather than transgression against their law. Pilate said, I'm going to kill you guys if you don't get out of here. And they said, go ahead. Go ahead. So they laid bare their necks, according to Josephus, And said, kill us, we're not going to break God's law. Well, as you might imagine, Pilate backed down. He says, probably not a good way to carry on with my subjects. So he decided to take down all the the banners, all the standards there in Jerusalem. 
But there was another occasion when Pilate was not so merciful. This time, the friction was caused by a 23-mile aqueduct that Pilate had had built to bring water into the city of Jerusalem. But the problem was, he'd used temple funds for that particular project. So, again, the Jews were very upset. Again, they raised a protest. Um, but this time, Pilate had guards disguised in the crowds, guards with these, these daggers hidden under their clothes. And so as the Jews, and Josephus describes this in great detail, but as the Jews passionately made their complaint, and they were, they were pretty upset with Pilate, Pilate gave the signal, and those hidden guards ended up slaughtering not all, only all the protesters, but also anybody else who happened to be there in the crowd. It was a very, very bloody event on that occasion. So I just share that with you to give you a little bit of the taste of the relationship between Pilate and the Jews at this particular time. It was a, a strained relationship, to say the least. Um, but here on this occasion, we see the Jews put aside this friction with Pilate in order to try to use him to accomplish their ends. Now, again, normally the, the governor of Judea resided in the city of Caesarea, but during the Passover, as all the crowds came into the city of Jerusalem, the, the governor would travel from Caesarea to Jerusalem and take up residence there. He would be in the, par- the palace of Herod, which was on the western hill of Jerusalem. And that's where he is as the Sanhedrin brings Jesus to Pilate, now again, six in the morning, early this morning on Friday. And they, they arrive at the palace with a condemning accusation. Look at verse 2. Mark tells us that Pilate asked him, asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Now, that title seems to come out of nowhere, right? The title seems to come out of nowhere. But, but I believe that Pilate uses this title here because he got that title from the accusations made against Jesus by the Sanhedrin. Let me explain what I mean. As commentator R.T. France explains, the title King of the Jews would have been a Roman way or a Gentile way of understanding the idea of Jesus as the Christ. The idea of, of Jesus as the King of the Jews would have been a Roman way or a Gentile way of understanding Jesus as the Christ. Now remember, that term Christ or Messiah was using the Old Testament to speak of the one anointed, the one anointed to rule over God's people. So it was commonly used with Israel's kings. But here's the thing. At this particular moment in history, when, when Pilate is the governor over Judea and the Israel... Uh, the Jewish people are under the authority of Rome, it was forbidden for them to have a king. They would have no king but Caesar. So it appears that the high priest and the Sanhedrin bring Jesus to Pilate, and, and they say, he's been identifying himself as our Christ. He's been identifying himself as our king in defiance of Rome. In defiance of Rome. You see, the Sanhedrin was accusing Jesus of being an insurrectionist, a rebel, a political insurgent against Rome. And that would have been a really serious accusation. Um, those found guilty of rebellion against Rome, insurrection against Rome, they weren't treated lightly. Uh, you didn't just have to pay a fine, you know, the gal at the front desk, pay the fine and you're done with it. You didn't have to just serve a little bit of jail time. No, if you were found guilty of being an insurrectionist, of leading rebellion against Rome, They condemned you to death, and they condemned you to the worst death that they could condemn you to, death by crucifixion. So I bring all that. That's that's the game that the Sanhedrin is playing at. And that's where Pilate's question here comes from. Pilate is attempting to get to the bottom of this insurrection accusation. So Pilate asks Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And that is really a new title for Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. So far as we've been working through the gospel, again, we're now to chapter 15. We've heard Jesus called rabbi. We've heard him called Lord. We've heard him called the Christ, the Son of Man, even the Son of God. But this is the first time that he's been referred to as the King of the Jews. But it's not the last time he's going to be referred to as the King of the Jews. It actually becomes, that title, King of the Jews, actually becomes a key title in this chapter. Mark uses it six times here in this chapter. It hasn't been used chapter 1 to 14. But when we get to chapter 15, it's used six times. It's used six times on this day that Mark walks us through the crucifixion. And I believe that Mark is using it here intentionally. I think, I think Mark has kind of been waiting for this moment. He's been sitting on this title, waiting for this moment, because now he wants us to see Jesus as our king. And as I mentioned earlier, he wants to see Jesus as our king coming into his glory through the cross. Jesus, our king, coming into his glory through the cross. But what Mark wants us to see, Jesus as king, Pilate is struggling to see. 
Uh, in Mark's Greek, Pilate's question here, are you king of the Jews, is emphatic. It comes across like Pilate is actually quite surprised that this lowly carpenter's son could be king of the Jews. It reads as if Pilate's saying, you? Are you really the king of the Jews? You see, this king standing before him, this Jesus, he doesn't fit with Pilate's expectations of what a king should look like. And as we'll see, he doesn't look much like an insurrectionist either. So Pilate asks his question, are you king of the Jews? But notice the text here, he doesn't get much of an answer from Jesus. Remember back in chapter 14, when the high priest asked Jesus in that trial, he asked Jesus the question, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Remember Jesus' answer there? He gave a powerful answer there. Remember he said, I am, ego in me, I, I am, and you will see me. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So, so there in chapter 14, as Jesus is interrogated, as Jesus is asked this question, are you? He gives a very powerful and profound answer. But here, Jesus' response is much more subdued. Look at the text. I don't know if you have a New American Standard or an NIV here this morning, but they translate it as Jesus says, It is as you say. But Mark's Greek is actually more ambiguous. It's literally, you yourself are saying so. You yourself are saying so. And that's that's the way that the ESV translates it. You have said so. Are you the king of the Jews? That's what you're saying. If you say so, that's the way it comes across. Commentator Morna J. Hooker explains, Here Jesus makes no claim for himself. And I like this. The onus of deciding who he is is thrown back on others, both those who take part in the story, people like Pilate, and those who read it. Are you the king of the Jews? You say so. You say so. So Jesus here gives Pilate really a non-answer. But Jesus' Jesus' opponents, specifically the the high priests, are trying to give Pilate all kinds of information about Jesus. Mark tells us, look there, verse 3, the chief priests accused him of many things, many things. Over in Luke 23, Luke gives us a glimpse into what some of those accusations were. This is what he says there. Luke records that the chief priests were saying to Pilate, We found this man, listen to this, misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. That's what they were saying. Let me tell you how bad this guy is. Look at what he's doing. He's misleading our nation. He's taking people away from Rome. He's forbidding us to pay tribute to Caesar. He's claiming to be our king. Luke tells us that they went on to say, Jesus stirs up people everywhere. He's causing insurrections. He's teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. You see what they're doing? He's a bad guy, this Jesus. He's trying to stir up everybody against you. They're accusing Jesus before this Roman authority of trying to lead rebellion against the government. Is that true? Is that true? Remember, we looked at this back in chapter 12. They tried to get Jesus in this trap, you know. Okay, are we supposed to pay taxes to Caesar or to God? Remember, what what was Jesus' response? Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. So has Jesus been trying to lead rebellion against Rome? (laughs) No, what is he even teaching? My kingdom is not of this world, right? Remember, there in the garden, Peter wants to hack off somebody's ear, and he says, put your sword away, Peter. That's not the way of my kingdom. So Jesus has made it clear. He hasn't come to overthrow Rome. He's come to deal with sin, death, and the devil. Amen? He made it clear. But as we've seen already, the, the chief priests, this group, they don't care about the truth. They just want to get rid of Jesus. They just want to get rid of Jesus, so they spin their lies. But here's the thing. Pilate sees right through their deception. He sees right through it. Look down to verse 10. There we read that he, Pilate, perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. Pilate's seeing what's going on here. In verse 14, we see Pilate again arguing for Jesus' innocence. There he says, why, what evil has he done? He's innocent. And as you go through all the other gospel writers as they describe this scene, they echo this same picture of Pilate. John tells us that Pilate told the Jews, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in Jesus. Luke gives us a more full picture, and he tells us that Pilate said to the Jews, after examining him, after examining Jesus, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Nothing deserving death has been done by him. According to Luke, that's what Pilate told the Jews. And in Matthew, remember this, it's Pilate's wife who comes to him and says, have nothing to do with this righteous man. Remember, she had had a dream. 
So she tells, she warns her husband, I have nothing to do with this righteous man. So, so here's the thing. Pilate, this, this Gentile worldly ruler, sees clearly Jesus' innocence. He sees clearly Jesus' innocence. And so he implores Jesus here to stand up for himself. Look at verse 4. He says, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? In other words, stand up for yourself. Stand up for yourself. Answer their foolish charges. Don't suffer in silence with these charlatans. We all see what they're doing. What does Jesus do? Look at verse 5. But he made no further answer. Why? He's innocent. Pilate sees it. So why not defend himself? Why? Because the way of Jesus is different than the way of this world. Mark tells us that Pilate was amazed by Jesus' silence. He marveled at it. And he was amazed because it was so different than what he expected. Let me ask you a question. How would you respond if you found yourself in a situation similar to the one Jesus finds himself in here? How would you respond? If you were in a situation, not just when you were wrongly accused, but if you were in a situation where your life was on the line, and there were people making false accusations against you, and it was clear that they had malicious intent, how do you think you would respond to that situation? Let's be honest. We would be shouting our innocence from the rooftops, right? We would be writing letters. We'd start, we'd start a social media campaign, you know, hashtag set Ryan free. I mean, we'd go all out. We'd let everybody that we could know we're innocent, right? Amen? That's the way we'd respond. But Jesus doesn't say a word here in his own defense. Why not? Here's the answer. Because Jesus understands who he is and why he is in that moment. He is in that moment to serve. He is in that moment to serve. You see, Jesus realizes that above all the false accusations of the high priests, and above all the authority of Pilate and Rome, there is one greater who is working. Jesus knows that he goes to the cross not because of some trumped-up charges from the Sanhedrin or, or because he didn't defend himself enough before Pilate. Jesus knows that he goes because the plan of God is for Jesus to serve the people of God by dying as the Lamb of God. He knows that's the plan. And so he stands, and just picture the scene there. He stands in silence as a man resolved to accomplish the plan. Jesus goes as our king to serve his people. He is our servant king. He is a silent servant. And in the silence of his defense, as these false accusations are hurled against him, Mark shows us the glory of our king. He's showing us the glory of our king. Think about this. Jesus stands silent, the king who serves the lowliest. He serves the lowliest. He is the king who serves murderers, and prostitutes, liars and thieves. He serves them. He serves us by accepting the accusations for us. By accepting the accusations for us. That's why in the scene, Pilate marvels. Jesus doesn't look like the kings of the world. He doesn't look like the kings of the world. He isn't focused on defending himself or holding on to his own gain or his own comfort. No, he is focused on what? On serving, serving his people. So he utters not a word. And in his silence, we see his glory. In his silence, we see his glory. And we continue to behold his glory. As we watch the situation now intensify. In verses 6 to 11 here, we move from our king accused to our king rejected. Here, as Pilate realizes the innocence of Jesus... Pilate attempts to set Jesus free from the trap of the Sanhedrin. Um, Now Mark sets up the scene by telling us, look at verses 6 and 7. He sets up the scene by telling us, at the feast, he, speaking of Pilate, used to release for them, for the Jews, one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Now this guy, Barabbas, he is a true insurrectionist. He is a, a murderous rebel. He is a man who had, who had been part of and, and most likely led a Jewish rebellion against Rome. And, and people had died in that rebellion. The text tells us here that, that people had been murdered by Barabbas and his crew. 
not told who died, but most likely it was those trying to enforce the authority of Rome. But this is a true insurrectionist. And this true insurrectionist, this murderous rebel, is presented here in the Gospel of Mark as, as a foil for Jesus. He is the antithesis of Jesus. Where, where Barabbas wants to overthrow Roman occupation to bring in a Jewish earthly kingdom, Jesus brings a kingdom from above, right? A kingdom not of this world. Where, where Barabbas is attempting to bring revolution through the might of swords and clubs, a revolution through murder, Jesus brings a kingdom of peace and truth and love and grace, a kingdom that conquers through the word, amen, and through the spirit. And where Barabbas is a man guilty, he's a rebel, he's a murderer. Jesus stands as a man who is repeatedly over and over. Remember, we looked at the trial there in chapter 14. They couldn't find two people that could agree with an accusation against Jesus. Jesus has repeatedly shown his innocence. Jesus has repeatedly shown his innocence. So, so these two, the foil and the true hero, are put forth side by side in this text. And they're put forth as a choice. Choice before the people. Which one do you want? Which one do you want? And this choice comes about as, as Pilate thinks he has a way out of this situation. Again, he knows Jesus is innocent. He's come to that conclusion himself. His wife has shared that with him as well. And by this point, Jesus had sent, or Pilate had sent Jesus to Herod, Herod Antipas, who was the ruler of Galilee, who was also in Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, now that event isn't recorded here in Mark. It's only recorded in the Gospel of Luke. But there Luke tells us that Herod also found that Jesus was innocent. These charges against him were trumped up. So, so Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent, but he's also feeling the pressure, right, from the high priests. I mean, these guys had a lot of sway there in Jerusalem and over the Jewish people. So Pilate, as <laughs> you can just picture this politician, um, Pilate is here trying to find a, difficult, a way out of this difficult situation, and he thinks he's found it. In verses 8 to 10, Mark tells us that, and the crowd came up to, and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. So, you know, you normally release for us at the feast a prisoner, so we want you to release for us a prisoner. Verse 9, and Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release for you your king? Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered up. So, so here Pilate says, I got it figured out. I got a way out. I'll let the crowd decide, and I'm sure they'll choose this king of the Jews, because I know that the high priest only brought him to me because they're jealous of his popularity. Out of envy. They're jealous of his popularity. So I'll use Jesus' popularity to save him, and he'll save me as well, to get me out of this tough situation. That's Pilate's plan. But the plan backfires on him. Read, look at verse 11. And the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release for them Barabbas instead. Surprise, Pilate. The crowd demands the murder, the murderer, instead of, or probably better said, in the place of Jesus. Given the choice, they all reject Jesus. But in their rejection, Mark again is showing us more of the glory of our king. You look at the text here, I think that verse 11, although it is a picture of of what happened, it isn't just a picture of what happened. I think it's also a gospel picture. It's a picture of the gospel. As commentator James Edward explains, it's not difficult to see in this quote-unquote prisoner exchange a reflection of the substitutionary understanding of the atonement. Substitutionary atonement, that means one pays the price of another. One endures the consequence of another's actions. And here, Barabbas, this murderous insurrectionist, he deserves to pay, but he's allowed to what? Go free. He's allowed to go free. And Jesus, the innocent, is left to suffer in his place. It's a powerful gospel picture that Mark is showing us here. It's a picture of what the scriptures teach. Scriptures say that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5.8. And Paul's saying there that Jesus died in our place. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. He died in our place. He died so that we could go free, just like Barabbas just like Barabbas. And we are just like Barabbas. don't mean to take a step on your self-esteem this morning, but we are just like Barabbas. First Peter 3.18, it says this, 
Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous in the place of the unrighteous. You see, just like Barabbas, who was the guilty one, the unrighteous one who was allowed to go free, so we too are the guilty ones, the unrighteous ones who are allowed to go free because Jesus, our innocent king, does what? He dies in our place. He dies in our place. And again, that's the glory of our king. His way is so unlike the ways of the, the kings of this world. In his kingdom, the people don't pay for the foolishness of their leaders, the foolishness of their king. Does that happen to us sometimes? You get bad leaders in place, and who suffers? The people. But in the kingdom of God, the people don't pay for the foolishness of the king. It's the king who pays for the foolishness, the sinfulness of the people. And he pays by taking our place. He pays by suffering what we should have suffered, enduring the judgment that we should have endured. And that's what we see here in the rejection of our king. He is rejected so that you and I, true Barabbases at heart, we can go free. We can go free. And that rejection leads us to the third part, the, the third point for this morning. And that's our king condemned. Our king condemned. After the crowd demands Barabbas be released, Pilate turns and asks them, verse 12, this question. Then what shall I do? What shall I do with this man you call king of the Jews? And here here we come to a climactic moment in this text. What will be the response of this crowd? What is to be done with Jesus? Look at verses 13 and 14. And they cried out again, what? Crucify him. They cried out again. They'd just been crying out, what? Give us Barabbas. And Pilate says, well, what do you want me to do with this one? You're king. And they cry out what? Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate says to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shout all the more. Crucify him. And see here in their cry, in their demand, they reveal what they think about Jesus. They're revealing what they think about Jesus. They call for crucifixion because they they see him as a fraud. They call for him to be treated like a pretender, to be treated like a usurper, to be treated like a rebel against the way a rebel against authority was treated in that culture. He's an insurrectionist. Do to him what you do to rebels. Crucify him. And that's how Rome dealt with rebels. Crucifixion was a punishment reserved for political insurgents and rebellious slaves. So the crowd says, treat Jesus like one of them. Because that's how we see him. And the protest of Pilate, it doesn't seem to matter to them. I mean, look at the text here. They, they give no argument. They give no reasonable justification to Pilate when he asks why. What evil has he done? He's an innocent man. Why would you demand he be crucified? And how do they respond to that? They just shout louder. Mark's Greek here reads literally, they cried out beyond measure. This is their insatiable cry. He is not our king. We will not be ruled by him. Get rid of him. That's their cry. Their insatiable cry. They cried out beyond measure. And in their cry, brothers and sisters, we're seeing another gospel picture. We see a revelation of the heart of man. We see a revelation of the heart of man. Although this crowd's response here might shock us, brothers and sisters, we need to see ourselves in this crowd. We need to see ourselves in this crowd. Think about it. Honestly, is this not the way that every single person on the planet has responded to our creator and true king? Is this not the way every single one of us? The sinful heart of fallen man rejects God as our true king. We want to do away with him. We want to rule ourselves. That's what our flesh desires. What the, that's what the sinful heart of man desires. It's been that way ever since Eve believed the serpent's lie back in Genesis chapter 3. We've continued to believe the, believe the lie that God is keeping the best from us. He isn't fit to rule us, and we'd be better off ruling ourselves. Remember the scene back there in Genesis 3? God's keeping the best from you. He's not being honest with you. Okay, well, I'll go check it out for myself. And it's been the same ever since. See, just like this crowd, all humanity cries 
away with our king. We will not be ruled by him. He is just a fraud and we will rule ourselves. I want you to understand, that isn't just the cry of the atheist. That isn't just the cry of the atheist. That is the cry of every single one of our rebellious hearts. I mean, every time we turn away from the truth, every time we turn away from the law of God and we attempt to go at life our own way, we are rebelling against heaven and saying, away with you, I will not be ruled by you. I have better ideas. I have better wisdom. I have a better plan for my life. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. Our king is so gracious. He is so merciful. I mean, think about it. Although Jesus, at that moment, he could have called down judgment on all of those people. Right? I mean, he, he keeps the whole universe sustained. And in that moment, as they were all yelling out, crucify him, crucify him, Jesus could have said, you're all done. Could he not? He could have called down condemnation on all of them at that moment. And he could have done the same with every single one of us the first time we shook our fist at heaven. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Instead, our serving king, our atoning king, embraces the will of God and becomes our suffering king. Verse 15 we read, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This politician, Pilate, he turns from the truth and he crumbles to the will of the crowd. And he knowingly releases a violent man and he condemns, condemns the innocent. And Mark tells us here that Pilate had Jesus scourged before handing him over to be crucified. Again, let me just cite Josephus here who describes the scourging process. He explains that the prisoner would be stripped and bound to a post. And there they, they were beaten with a leather whip woven with bits of bone and metal. And there was no maximum number of strokes prescribed. So, so scourging before crucifixion, it could go on as long as the torturers desired. Josephus explains that the scourging lacerated and stripped the flesh, often exposing bones and entrails. One of the purposes of scourging before crucifixion was to shorten the duration of the crucifixion. However, um, Josephus says that those who endured scourging, it was often such a brutal process that they didn't even reach the cross. Women were, were exempt from either suff- suffering or, or even witnessing a scourging, so they wouldn't be exposed to this. And this was surprising to me. It was such a shocking sight to witness a scourging that it is said that it even horrified the emperor Domitian. So if you know anything about history, he was not a nice guy. He was a very violent and, and brutal leader. But it's said that it was even shocking and horrify, horrifying to him. And, and I want you to understand, that's, that's the beginning. That's the beginning of what Jesus endured. Now, our king went to that kind of suffering willingly for us. You know, I say this all the time, and I'll say it again. These things really happened. I was just thinking about that this week. I was thinking, and I know we all have those moments, and again, in the weakness of our flesh, where we doubt the love of God. How dare you allow this to happen in my life, whatever that is. And we, we walk through some deep waters. I'm not minimizing those things. But I was thinking about this. I was thinking, how silly of us. It's right here. Our king went willingly suffer these things for us. How silly of us to, to doubt his love for us. Here after enduring the scourging, he's, he's then sent to die. And Mark says, Pilate delivered him to be crucified. Delivered him. In, in saying that, Mark is using a term here that he's used so often in this book, a term that's been really packed with theological significance. Greek word, Greek verb, parodidomi, handed over, delivered up. And every time as Jesus was on the road to Jerusalem, he was predicting what would happen to him in Jerusalem. He used this term with his disciples. He spoke about this time that would happen when he would be delivered up, handed over. And we watched him be handed over, first by Judas, then by the Sanhedrin, and now here by Pilate. But each one that has done that, and, and each one is culpable for their actions in doing that, but as each one has done that, there is one that is one far greater who is ultimately the one handing over Jesus. Ultimately the one delivering up Jesus. 
Jesus is ultimately delivered up by God himself. Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2 is there proclaiming the gospel. And this is what he says. Just listen. Acts chapter 2, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus, then listen to what he says. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There Peter proclaims that the one who ultimately delivered up Jesus was God himself. And God delivered up Jesus so that our king might suffer for us in order to save us. In order to save us. The eternal and unchangeable plan of God was for our king to be accused and rejected and condemned for our redemption. For our redemption. But here's the thing. In paradox of paradoxes, it is through suffering that our king comes into his glory. It's through suffering that our king comes into his glory. What, what men might first look at and see is just humiliation, just weakness, just shame. Here's a man brutalized and dying upon a cross. What men might look at and just see weakness and humiliation and shame, all eternity looks at as the moment that changed everything. A moment that changed everything. What's the song of heaven? What's the song of heaven? We read it in Revelation chapter 5. Worthy is the lamb who was what? Worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And that is the song that all of the redeemed, all of us, will be singing for eternity. Amen? That's the way heaven looks at the cross. Heaven sees the cross as our king coming into his glory. What a paradox. A king glorified through a cross. That's the way, that's the heart of the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, that's to be the way of our lives as well. That's to be the way of our lives as well. We are called to a paradoxical life as Christians. We are called to live in in the way of our king, a way that is so different, brothers and sisters, than the way of this world. But what does that look like? How do we apply these truths about our king? How do we live life in light of this one who is our king? I just want to quickly, just quickly, give you three things to take from this message, three quick applications, right? Ready for these? Let me even jot these down. Here's the first one. First way to apply this. Stop pursuing your own righteousness and just rest in the king. Stop pursuing your own righteousness and just rest in the king. Think about the ways of this world. The ways of this world are to to work and toil and earn everything you get, right? If you want it, you better work for it. That's a life of law. You earn your wages. But in the kingdom of God, what do we find? A life of grace, amen? A life of grace. We find a king who's already done all the work for us. He lived the life that we failed to live, and he suffered the wages that we had earned through that life that we lived. He paid for our sin and our guilt. So in this kingdom, rest. Rest in your atoning king. Rest in in his righteousness. Rest in his sacrifice. Rest in his victory. Stop working so hard to try to prove how great you are, and just rest in how gracious he is. Amen? Just rest. So that's first. That's foundational. Stop trying to pursue your own righteousness and just rest in the righteousness of Jesus. But then I want to encourage you from that place of freedom, joyfully follow your king. Not because you're trying to earn righteousness, but you're declared righteousness. So joyfully follow your king. So, so what I mean by this, stop chasing your own way. Stop resting in your own wisdom. Stop thinking that you have to have all the answers. Instead, Just follow Jesus. Drink in his truth. Let him, by his word and by the spirit, day after day, step after step, guide you. Rest in your servant king. Let him serve you by leading you. Let him serve you by leading you. And finally, 
turn away from the comforts of this world. And by that, I mean just your, the way we get so enamored with the things of this world and we set all our affections on the things of this world. But turn away from those things and embrace the way of the cross. As I've been working through this scene and thinking through this passage, the words of Hebrews 13 keep coming to mind. This is Hebrews 13, verses 12 to 14. Listen to it. Let me remind you of it. The author writes, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him. I love that. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Our king has suffered for us. So let us go to him. Let us suffer with him. Let us lose our life for his sake that we might find it. Let us put off the wisdom of this world and be fools for Christ. You okay with that? Let's be fools for Christ. Let's endure with him that we might reign with him. Let us embrace the paradox that is the Christian life because it is a beautiful paradox, brothers and sisters. Our king has shown us that. He's shown us that through the glory of his cross. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we gather together in this place, we declare there is none like you. There is none like you. And, and Father, as we reflect on your unfathomable plan to glorify the king of everything through death on a cross, death reserved for insurrectionists and rebels. We marvel. And we thank you that through these things you teach us that that your ways are so different than this fallen world. And as this world is chasing and working and clawing and scratching to pursue its own standing, its own pride, its own glory, you sent your son to be humbled, to be brought low, to die upon a cross so that you would be able to freely give us right standing and glory and joy and peace and an eternity of blessing. Who is like you, our God? Oh, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray that we would grow more and more in glorifying in the truths of the gospel. That we would look at life through the lens of the cross and we would see the beauty of the life that you've called us to live. These things we pray in Jesus' name.